we're going to talk about reconciliation, your personal rec reconciliation with God, uh, rec reconciling with relatives, brothers, sisters, people, and then agents of reconciliation to the world. I will guarantee you what I'm going to share this morning is the dirtiest message you ever heard. This is R-rated. This is definitely hot, scandalous stuff. And I'll guarantee you, you didn't get it in flannel graph in your Sunday school class. And I'll bet you 90% of you never heard it in your life. So buckle up, buttercup. You are going to be shaken to your core this morning, all right? In reconciliation, barriers to, to family and community get torn down. People who were estranged and divided get reunited. Hostility and woundedness get replaced with healing and goodwill. The old prophets of Israel who longed for reconciliation said that our world thirsted for it so deeply they would use great art and imagination to picture it. They said things like, when the Messiah, God's anointed, came, he would bring reconciliation. And sometimes they would use pictures of that peace, not just of human beings, but to all of God's creatures and to all of God's creation, experiencing peace and shalom. So the prophet Isaiah, in talking about the coming of Messiah, says, it looked like this. He's using figurative uh, pictures, alliterative, uh, allegorical language to picture something. He said, it's so good, it's going to look like the wolf will lie down with a lamb. He won't eat him. And the leopard will lie down with the goat. And the calf and the lion and the yearling will be together. No violence, no pain. A little child, powerless, will lead these beasts, these predators. Now, he's trying to give you like, whoa, could that ever be so? He says, it's going to be that good. When we imagine reconciliation happening in our world, we kind of think, what would it be like for North Korea and South Korea to live together in peace? What would it be like for Israelis and Palestinians to live in harmony? In our own country, what would it be like if the wounds of 250 years of race, slavery, and bigotry, and another 100 years of Jim Crow laws and lynchings and years of racial injustice got healed? He said, imagine a marriage getting healed. So visions of being reconciled capture our hearts because division hurts everybody so much. It hurts families, marriages, hurts people in workplaces, kids in gangs, and our nation way too often, too much of that alienation and division. Even religious groups, spiritual families, spiritual communities, churches, even Christians become one more divisive faction trying to power up on the other group. That's why spiritually, personally, socially, and systemically, the crying need for our world is reconciliation. So Paul wrote to a little church he founded in Corinth, and he said this, God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ Jesus. Now, everybody tried to be reconciled to God by the law. I won't eat this, won't do that, won't touch this, won't wear this, won't smoke this, blow this, inhale it, rub it out. They did that for 1,500 years. Can't reconcile yourself to God. They well, let's don't wear fabrics that are mixed. Let's don't drink this. Let's don't do this on the Sabbath. And, and finally, the Lord showed up and said, you sick of this? 
you can't be reconciled except by me. You come to me, I'll reconcile you to the Father. So this is what's kind of going on. So here in the Old Testament, it's a picture of grace. Imagine this kind of grace. Next couple of weeks, we'll talk about it. Reconciliation. Learn what it looks like, what it takes to be reconciled with God. And I'll invite some of you to do that today. See, next week, we'll learn how, well, it's Christmas, but afterwards, we'll learn how to be reconciled with other people. And the third week, how do I become an agent of reconciliation to the world? That unbelievable mission Paul had said had been given to the church to become agents of reconciliation. We become agents of division, you know. We build churches around political parties, around race, around nationality, everything but what Jesus said. So we all grew up, didn't we, in one of those families where somebody, won't say who, had issues. Anybody got a family like that? Are your relatives? Here's a quick summary of the book of Genesis, just the first book in the Bible. It's a lot about families, and the very first family comes along. So here we go, first family. The older brother Cain killed his brother Abel. A couple of generations after that, a guy named Lamech comes along. He's a polygamist. He introduced polygamy to the world, and he was a murderer. Then Noah got drunk. His family's a train wreck. Abraham impregnated his wife's maid. Jacob deceived his father, took his twin brother's inheritance. Jacob had 12 sons by two wives and two maids. He favored one of them, Joseph, so much, the other sons kidnapped Joseph, wanted to kill him, and one of the brothers named Judah had him sell Joseph for money and put him in slavery and then covered his robe of many colors with goat's blood to make their dad think Joseph was dead. Now, these are the families that made it into the Bible. So straighten up, smile. Your family's doing way better than you ever thought. Everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. Anything's possible. Right here in the middle of all this dysfunction comes today's story and what we're going to look at. In Genesis chapter 38, this man named Judah leaves his brothers, goes down to a place called Abdullam, and he marries a Canaanite girl. Now, put yourself back in that culture. To an ancient Hebrew reader, this would immediately mean trouble. In that day, you don't leave your brothers, so they would immediately understand this is a broken family and something bad's going on here, and the guy is marrying not a Hebrew girl but a Canaanite which meant if you were an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, you were choosing idolatry and paganism and unfaithfulness. Whoa. So Judah's going down a bad road from the very first sentence. <laughs> Cheer up, it gets worse. <laughs> Judah and his wife, although we never learn her name, have three boys. You ready for this? Ur, Onan, and Shelah. The boys grow up. We're told Judah got a wife for his son, Er, E-R, Er. That was his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was so wicked in the Lord's sight, God put him to death. You'll notice the writer wants to be sure we catch where Er is in the birth order. Twice, he said, Judah's firstborn. Even in our day, firstborns are disproportionately the achievers, the leaders, presidents, CEOs, prime ministers, and all kinds of stuff 
like that. In the ancient world, the firstborn would be heir to everything dad had, had, and he'd get all the good stuff. He'd get a double portion. That's why he's named Ur, handsome Ur, smart Ur, strong Ur. This takes some real thinking on my part to do this, okay? We all want to live in the land of Ur. It's true, but it turns out he's even wicked-er than everybody else. So he's killed, and he's out of the story really fast. So in the ancient world, in Israel, but also other nations, if a woman's husband died, her father-in-law was obligated to have her marry his next oldest son. They obviously didn't have any kind of a national or social welfare system or a safety net net for these people. So everybody would have recognized her father-in-law, Judah, is obligated to give one of his sons to her to raise up children because a woman had no rights and no security. His second son is Onan. Now remember, this is a polygamous culture. So presumably Onan would have had other wives, but if Onan had a kid by Tamar, then that kid would get the firstborn inheritance, which would mean a financial loss for Onan and his little brood by other wives. So Onan figured out a way to cheat Tamar and shame her in that culture with barrenness and get away with it. Now, this is in the Bible. Genesis chapter 38, it's in your Bible too. It's in the Catholic Bible too. Verse 8, then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up children for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. And what he did was so wicked in the Lord's sight, the Lord put him to death. Now I got to pause here. And I want to meddle a little bit. We just read from God's word why he got killed. Religious groups say birth control is a sin because God killed Onan for spilling his seed on the ground. Other groups use that for masturbation. Now listen to Rick. He told me why he killed him. They practice birth control, nothing new. And nothing sinful. And it doesn't say anything about masturbation. Where in God's name did you come up with that? It was because he wouldn't raise up children to the barren woman so that they could propagate for this woman her security and future so the brother would have a legacy. He refused to do it. God killed him. It had nothing to do with spilling seed on the ground. It just showed he was going to pleasure himself with his brother's wife, but he wasn't going to do what he was supposed to do in the culture. Does that make sense? Oh, God. Do even churches read the Bible? I I don't know. I don't know. And, And if they did, it'd scare them to death. God's way bigger than they are. All right. So to the ancient Hebrew, say you can talk about that at lunch. You say, I never heard that in my life. Yeah. To the ancient reader, Tamar would be a tragic victim. They would all feel sorry for her. She wanted a good thing. 
for one thing, to bring offering into the world. That's a good thing. And in the ancient world where survival was real dicey and the human population struggled, that was a good thing for a woman to do. And not only that, but even though she's a Canaanite pagan idolatrist, she wants to be part of the story of the people of God, the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah. She was devoting herself, this Canaanite woman, to be a mother of the people of God. Yet she had been given not one, but two men of great wickedness, and both were killed. And she's still barren. So Judah, her father-in-law, his moral obligation to Tamar would be clear and evident to everybody in the ancient world. Now, we have to put ourselves in their position to understand the story. His obligation would be to have her marry his third son. Now, the other two are dead. Sheila. And he tells Tamar, as the reader would expect, okay, sweetheart, you go home to your dad. I'm going to raise the little Sheila. And when he's old enough, I'll call you and you can come marry him and you can have kids by him. Secretly, he says to himself, in your dream, sweetheart, you ain't never getting Sheila. I've already lost two boys. So he never sends for Tamar. He leaves her to wither and die alone. After some period of time, Judah's wife dies, and Judah doesn't spend very much time mourning. And it's a really interesting contrast between the story of Joseph uh, when he was supposedly kidnapped and thought dead by his father Jacob, and, and he refused to be comforted and mourned a long time. But in this story, Judah's wife died, and he didn't spend a week. He's very happy to be comforted. He's ready to date again pretty quick. And he's not an eHarmony guy. He's not a Christian Mingle guy. He's not even an hour time for 50 plus. No, no. He's a Tinder guy. He swipes right. And that meant going down to a place called Timna. Tam Merry Christmas. Tamar, Tamar, you won't forget this. See, Tamar, Here's this, and to our surprise, this Canaanite pagan woman goes into action. She disguises herself as a prostitute, wears a veil so she can't be recognized, and Judah comes by and propositions her and offers to pay her a young goat from his flock. So she says, okay, but you'll have to give me your seal, your cord, and your staff as collateral, kind of like getting his credit cards or the password to his bank account in our day. And he says, okay, they have sex. And although he doesn't know it, she gets impregnated by the father of her first two husbands. <laughs> Judah, Judah will be, if you understand this, both the father of Tamar's offspring and Tamar's father-in-law. This means if you think it through, she will be the mother of these children and their sister-in-law at the same time. How messed up is this? Your family is doing great. And this is in the Bible. Judah goes home. He tries to FedEx the goat down for payment, but nobody can find the prostitute by the side of the road. So he says, ah, forget it. I don't want word to get out. I slept with a prostitute and be a laughing stock in my village. Never mind. Well, months go by. Then word comes to Judah that his widowed daughter-in-law, Tamar, is wearing widow maternity clothes. 
She had gotten herself pregnant, of course. He has no idea who the father is, so it's up to him as the father-in-law to figure out how to respond and what to do with her. And this is what he says, Genesis 38, verse 24. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. Whoa. Look, you don't want to fall into the hands of a Christian. Let me tell you that. Okay, this, even in the ancient world, that is remarkably brutal. Well, they bring her, but just when they're getting ready to light the match, she sends the seal and the cord and the staff over to Judah with a message. Uh-uh. Sparky, I'm pregnant by the man who owns these. And then she said, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Ring any bells, daddy? This is an, what a cool lady. She, I mean, she's smart. This is an incredible story with layer upon layer. Now, remember, Judah was the man who sold his brother Joseph into slavery. And he took he took Joseph's robe of many colors, that coat. He dipped it in goat blood, brought it to his father, Jacob, and said, see if you recognize whose robe this is. Now, precisely the same language is used to confront Judah that Judah used with his dad, Jacob. See if you recognize them. Whoa, what you so often comes around. Once more, there's a story with misleading clothes, deception, and a goat used to cover things up, and precisely the same question. See if you recognize this. So recognize ends up being a big word in this story in your life and mine. Judah is in a single sentence now, forced to recognize his treachery, his sin, and not only to his daughter-in-law, but decades earlier with his own dad, Jacob, and lying about his brother, Joseph. It says Judah recognized them, no kidding, and said, she is more righteous than I am. So God now begins to do a work in old Judah, and they call off the execution, and Tamar lives, and she gives birth to, in fact, two children, to twins, and there's another really interesting struggle with the firstborn, where the secondborn ends up being the one through whom the line of the children of Abraham will flow. Tamar, the rejected Canaanite girl, gets to be a mother of Israel. She gets to be part of God's great story and adventure after all. The moral of the story is, if you're a woman, girls, and your first husband dies from wickedness, and you marry his brother, and he refuses to impregnate you, and he dies, and your father-in-law won't let you marry the third son, just wait for your mother-in-law to die, pretend to be a prostitute, and have your father-in-law's kids, and it'll all work out in the end. Merry Christmas. Is this wild or what? See, what a weird story. How in the world did that get in the Bible? Co conventionally, religious people get a little squeamish reading this story in public. I mean, couldn't Tamar have found a more wholesome way to deal with her problem? Maybe she could have sold Mary Kay or essential oils or learned how to do computer coding or something. Well, the Bible doesn't say. The ancient world was a hostile, brutal place, kind of like our world. 
And these are not moral virtue fables in the Bible. They're living in the real world where there is great evil and the people are real and complex and their actions are often ambiguous. And the reader, that's us, has to kind of puzzle things out and put them together. You have to read the Bible with all of your mind. So here's a woman, Tamar. And she's marginalized because of her gender. She's a woman in the Old Testament. And her ethnicity, she's a pagan, she's a Canaanite. And her status as a childless, now twice widowed Gentile woman. I mean, she's at the bottom of the barrel. She is a victim of sexual misconduct. And instead of being cowed into passive surrender, which most readers would expect, she shows remarkable courage initiative and determination and creativity and in the end she triumphs over an oppressor and an unjust system that is completely stacked against her and she becomes part of God's incredible story now the reason for this is that the major character in this story the one you want to pay attention to is God and God cares about little Tamar and God is intent on creating a redemptive reconciling community he wants a people to be with, and he wants all kinds of people who everybody think will be left out. He wants to reconcile people to himself and to one another, so he goes to work even on wicked old Judah. And Judah recognized these items, and he says, she is more righteous than I am. And that's the beginning of the first glimmer of humanity in this guy named Judah. Many years later, the brothers are with Joseph, including Judah, and they're together once more, although they don't recognize Joseph now in Egypt. But Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize him. And in a very dramatic moment in that situation that actually changes the moral trajectory of the human race, Tamar gives birth to twins. And of course, we wonder, what happened to old Tamar? What happened to those twins? And oddly enough, the writer of Genesis doesn't tell us. She never appears after chapter 38 in the book of Genesis. However, hold on. Put your tray tables up, seatbelt. Okay, Tamar does show up again after about a 1,000 years in the New Testament. The New Testament begins with these words, as in Matthew. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Whoa, really? Matthew, you're going to bring that up? You're really going to throw it out there in public? I mean, you didn't mention any of the other mothers. You didn't say who Isaac's mom was or who Jacob's mom was. It's a very odd genealogy. See, genealogies were a big deal in the ancient world. Now, I know in our day, people read through the Bible and they see these long genealogies and they think, oh God, that's dull and boring and I don't care. But in that day, genealogies were how people learned about their identity and their history and their culture. All of their stories were wrapped up in those names. They would memorize those genealogies, pass them down from one generation to another because it meant we're somebody, we're a people, 
We have a tribe. We have a story. We have a history. They were like action movies, and people loved them. Hebrew genealogies, however, did not include women. Ah, but Matthew does, and not just a woman, but a woman who tricked her father-in-law into sleeping with her, something he was supposed to do anyway, and she's in the family tree of the Messiah. You've got to be kidding me. Well, not just that. She's a Canaanite woman. She's not one of us. She's not an Israelite, which means, wait for it, Jesus isn't just from an Israelite perspective a pure-blooded our guy. He's partly their guy too. He's partly Canaanite as well. Are you kidding me? You just read the genealogy. If I didn't miss it, oh, Tamar's big and bold right there. Is that right? She's in the genealogy of Jesus. All kind of misfits are in that genealogy. Tamar's not the only woman in the genealogy. It's really strange. Matthew decides to really blow things up. So he includes a woman named Ruth, who was not an Israelite. Not only was she a woman, she was a Moabite woman. They weren't allowed into the congregation of Israel. He includes a woman named Bathsheba. You might remember King David inflicted himself on her in an act of adultery. He includes another woman named Rahab. These are not Miss America. And she's not just a Gentile pagan. She's a Gentile hooker. It's like Matthew just poured over the Old Testament saying, who are the most disreputable characters I could stick into God's story who will tick everybody off when they read it? And he does. Now, why would Matthew do that? Because the time has come with Jesus to proclaim the gospel. Everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. Anything's possible. That was unthinkable in the Old Testament. And yet we just read God was sneaking it in all the way back there. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Dear God, not counting your sins against you or my sins against me. Do you want to know what God is like? Well, now comes Jesus in Matthew, and now we know. Outsiders aren't left outside anymore. Sinners and saints get all jumbled up, and grace starts flowing so heavily that Judah and Tamar are together again in Matthew, and their little children are the conduits through whom the love of God will flow because God was in Jesus reconciling the world to himself. And there is a message in there for you and for our world. If God can reconcile Israelite and Canaanite, Judah and Tamar, Democrat and Republican, black and white and Asian and Hispanic, and sinners and prostitutes and patriarchs and oppressors with the oppressed, then who is it who lies beyond the reconciling power of this incredible Jesus? Answer, nobody, nobody. Because it turns out, Tamar, amen, Tamar's story is part of Jesus' story. And the most unlikely people end up coming into the family of God. That's what the human race has loved so deeply about Jesus for more than 2,000 years. 
You have a heavenly father who loves you, who for some reason, God only knows, wants to be with you more than he wants anything else. He wants it so much that he sent his only son, Jesus, to be born in a manger, die on a cross. And if you're honest about it, kind of like Judah, there's some stuff in your relationship with your heavenly father that needs to get fixed. There's some distance. There's some behavior you're not proud of. So I want to call everybody today to be reconciled with God. Do it for your heavenly Father who loves you so much. Whatever needs to be confessed, confess it. Whatever needs to be changed or repaired or repented of, don't wait. Just do it. That habit, that relationship, that attitude, make your heart right with God. This week in your busy, busy life and in your busy, busy world, Take the time to read again carefully those first few chapters of Matthew and be amazed and astonished one more time at that tiny little life born in a manger that changed the world and upset all of history. What he did wasn't being done until he came. And as my rock and roll friends like to say, and he blew everything up. He blew air. The guy walked on the stage at Trans-Siberian Orchestra and said, you guys ready to hang out a little more and let's blow some stuff up? And I thought, I love Jesus to blow stuff up. It's particularly bad thinking, bad theology, bad views about a God who's inclusive. See, we didn't build this church on a white man. We didn't build this church on a black man. We didn't build this church on a political party. We didn't build it on some issue. We built it on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the key, and his family lets everybody in. If you want, you can come in too. Whoever you are, whatever your past, however far you are away from God, you may think he's near and he loves you. And these are put here in the Bible to encourage you. Everybody's welcome. God loves you. He can change the heart. He can change your whole circumstances. He can change the trajectory of your life. And, and he promises that when you accept Jesus, you get the blessings of Abraham, the blessing of promotion. He will lift your life, the blessing of possession. He wants you to have ownership and the blessing of dominion over your enemies. Those are legal rights we have in Christ from Abraham. And he says... If you are in Christ, you are the seed of Abraham. He's obviously speaking spiritually. And I'm thinking, maybe we just live way too low below our legal benefits, and we have a legal right to live a lot higher. And you ought to feel included as well. Our world, it may bigoted, racist, prejudiced. It'll always be that way. It's fallen. But the community of God's not supposed to be. We're supposed to have a view like Jesus. Everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything can happen. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.